CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face -face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com. Good evening and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a very special presentation tonight with... Professor Hélène Langevin, who is a professor in residence at the Brigham and Women's and, uh, uh, Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. She's also a visiting professor at the University of Vermont. Hélène uh, graduated from the McGill University, Montreal, as a medical doctor in 1978, conducted postdoctoral research in the areas of neuroanatomy and neurochemistry, She's worked mainly as a researcher and a hospital physician and an acupuncturist. You're an ad hoc reviewer, Hélène, of countless journals, including the Journal of Anatomy, Journal of Bodywork and Manual Therapy, the Journal of Pain, and interestingly, the Journal of Complementary and Alternative Medicine. You've written or contributed to over 60 journal articles. You've contributed to three book chapters, including The Trigger Point, Dry Needling, An Evidenced and Clinically Based Approach by Domahol and Fernandez de las Peñas. And uh, incidentally, Jan, uh, in fact, joined us last year to speak with me about uh, dry needling, which is great to have you as well, Ellen. Your main interests lie in researching connective tissues role in chronic pain, the mechanisms of acupuncture, as well as a manual and movement-based therapies such as yoga and massage. Hélène Langevin, welcome to CPD Health Courses presentation. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Where, where are you right now? I'm in Boston. Boston. It's been snowing there, I believe. Is that right? Non-stop for about three weeks. Okay, well, <laughs> we don't know where to put it. <laughs> Well, I'll have to send you some heat. It's uh, 37 degrees here in Melbourne, Australia. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that uh, you can handle that uh, that heat with No. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the cold. No. So let's, uh, let's begin. Elaine, you're a medical doctor, of course, a medical researcher and an acupuncturist, which is an unusual combination, I must say. Uh, I'm an osteopath and an acup acupuncturist, but you've taken the cake there with uh, being a medical doctor and a researcher, too. In fact, you've trained in acupuncture at several schools in the U.S. and the U.K. Tell me why you trained as an acupuncturist. I was interested and I wanted to have you know um, sort of in-depth training uh, when I did that it was in the um, 1980s there, there were not a lot of courses offered um, for physicians and even education in acupuncture was um, not quite as organized as it is today and so what I what I did is I, I went to several different schools and I wanted to experience uh, the the teaching of different styles of acupuncture, like traditional Chinese medicine, Japanese acupuncture, trigger point needling, um, and and I, I found that the teaching that I got at these different schools was, was quite varied, and uh, I, I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it is very varied, and that's something that Jan mentioned too, that there's a lot of uh, schools of thought of acupuncture. It's not just one thing, of course. Um, now, but how does someone with uh, such a, I might say, an impeccable scientific pedigree, such as yourself, rationalize the more empirical and philosophic, uh, philosophical and sometimes theoretical basis to TCM? I think it's fascinating. I mean, I, I think it's just a different way to think about and, and look at 
the human body and uh, it's just looking at the human body through a different lens and uh, I, I was fascinated by not just the acupuncture treatment but also how traditional Chinese medicine does a very different form of, of intake um, the questions they ask and the physical exam uh, they're they're really interested in, in putting together a patterns of information the symptoms the patient has uh, that that is very different from how we learn how to do it in, in medical school and when I studied acupuncture I was already a practicing internist and and I you know I, I, I thought I knew how to examine a patient and how to take a history and then when I saw uh, acupuncturists uh, take a medical history they were really doing it in a way that was uh, very thoughtful and, and very different from what I was doing and so I was very intrigued to understand what is their rationale for for um, asking the questions they ask and, and, and doing the physical exam that they do. Yeah, it, it is quite different and, uh, you know, things that uh, would be quite different would be things like uh, taking a pulse as a diagnosis, not in the way that a medical doctor does, but uh, in a TCM manner and looking at the tongue and so on. It might have been quite uh, strange for you, but you sound like a, a really open-minded uh, researcher, which is uh, why you've been succe so successful in your career, I imagine. Uh, my audience is, is interested in dry needling therapy and dry needling, of course, uh, uses acupuncture needles to treat myofascial pain by targeting trigger points. Now, some of your research has been focused on the effect that an acupuncture needle has on connective tissue. In fact, quite a lot of it has. So tell me about your research and what you've found and how might this uh, affect uh, the dry needling therapist thinking? Well, the research that I have done on acupuncture and connective tissue really is concerned with the effect of the needle on the, the bio, first of all the biomechanical effects of the needle on the tissue, mm. uh, how the needle interacts with the with the connective tissue, specifically the loose connective tissue tends to adhere to the needle and and then whenever you're moving the needle, the connective tissue seems to move along with it. And uh, that's a very, especially after you've rotated the needle even just a little bit, uh, if you rotate the needle even 180 degrees, the, the connective tissue tends to wind around and then sticks to itself. And then after that, and we've, we've measured this using ultrasound uh, all the time, and we can quantify how much movement occurs. And uh, the needle is a very effective way to deliver a very precise uh, mechanical stimulus to the connective tissue. And so we got interested in how do you how do you quantify this this stimulus and what types of biological effects uh, result from it. Yeah. Now uh, that that's fascinated me ever since I started reading your work, uh, possibly about well, ten years ago, and uh, read how you, you you had that whirling effect around uh, the the roughness of of an acupuncture needle. If you look at an acupuncture needle, of course, it's not as smooth as it looks to the naked eye, and that whirling effect is is a fascinating phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first time we saw it um, uh, with an ultrasound machine, we, we were really very, very intrigued by that. Um, it's, it, was, it was quite striking. And uh, as, you, as you mentioned, the acupuncture needles are not quite smooth. I mean, the, even the stainless steel needles that we, we, um, we use uh, typically now in practice uh, have a little bit of, of roughness to them. And, 
and the, the connective tissue, however, is so sticky, it'll stick to just about everything. I mean, we, we tried using needles that had been treated with silicone, with uh, Teflon, uh, all kinds of ways that we tried to make it not stick, and it sticks anyway. Um, I think it, the tissue actually sticks to itself just yeah. as much as it sticks to the needle. So you just got to basically, like you say, I think uh, I think you've used this uh, quote, which is a really good um, way to uh, imagine what's happening is like a, a, a fork in a spaghetti bowl and it just everything just wraps around you. Yeah, but, you know, in some people, it doesn't wrap quite as much as in others. In some people, okay. you insert the needle and it wraps right away. You can feel right away that there's a tug on the needle and the tissue winds very, very quickly. Other people, it's much looser. You you, yeah. you you can spin the needle around quite a bit, and there's a lot less of this binding that takes place. And, and right from the beginning, we started wondering, are there characteristics of connective tissue that could uh, be reflected in this interaction you know, with, with the needle? Yeah, you're right. Would those people, um, you know, I've used the different needles and um, the, the, there are some needles that are what are called ultra smooth and they don't uh, wrap uh, or, or don't cause that uh, that tensioning as much. But um, I find that those people that uh, say, I can't feel the needle, I can't, no, I, no, I can't feel anything. Have you got that needle in there? Perhaps maybe those ones that uh, uh, don't have the connective tissue wrapping around the needle? Possibly. Yeah, yeah. It could also have to do with the amount of sensory innervation that there is in that particular yeah location you know yeah. but what we have found is that in general if if we we've 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 needled people at various different locations on their bodies and on average it looks like the tendency to either wrap around the needle or not wrap around or wrap less tends to be a person specific attribute so that people overall generally yeah. some of them tend to have less of a response you know than than others it seems to have something to do with some you know some of their characteristics yeah. um, that as, as a person not so much as a one local spot versus another one yeah I agree and in fact uh, those same people who say I can't feel it will say the same wherever you put the needle and yeah. that that's why I'm thinking maybe there's a link between the two but uh, perhaps as they say uh, room for more research so uh, okay. yeah now, okay, so I'm really interested in this, uh, the whirling effect and the connective tissue, and I know that that's something that you've been interested in for a very long time, but it's it, everyone else is now becoming interested in it. So, um, you know, this effect, how, how do we connect that, if possible, to um, the effect that that's having on fibroblast activity, and then how maybe turning a needle can affect someone's pain or, or even in acupuncture, talking about, you know, someone who's uh, helped with insomnia and uh, irritable bowel problems or fertility problems, many of the things that acupuncturists treat. Have we gone there yet? Is there anything on that? Well, there's, there's several different levels to this question. So the first level is the direct effect of the needle on connective tissue and connective tissue cells, which would be fibroblasts. I and mean, of course, there's many other cells in connective tissue, but in my lab, we focused on fibroblasts. And Fibroblasts are the most abundant uh, cell in connective tissue. They are the cells that actually manufacture the connective tissue and, and that, that mediate responses, for example, to injury. And uh, so we found that the fibroblasts respond quite dramatically 
to the needle in animals. We of course can't do this experiment in humans because you know we wouldn't be able to actually you know take the piece of tissue out and look at it. But in animals we can, and we can measure the effect of the needle on the fibroblast. It's very uh, clear that there's a dose-dependent response. The fibroblasts expand, change shape, and become flat, and and they totally, you know, change in in um, their cytoskeletal uh, morphology. And so that was the first observation we made. And then we also uh, measured uh, different uh, type of signaling molecules that accompany this change in shape. Some inside the cell, some outside the cell. Uh, inside the cell, there's a certain number of, of signaling pathways that get activated that 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 have to do with um, the cell's ability to respond to the stimulus. Uh, the most important one, uh, there's two of them. One is called Rho, and the other one called RAC. And these are cytoskeletal re, um, signaling pathways. And on the outside of the cell, uh, an important signaling pathway that we found is. Um, uh, the apurinergic uh, pathway um, that releases ATP. Mm. And uh, other uh, investigators have been interested in, uh, in also uh, purinergic signaling in response to acupuncture with respect to sensory, peripheral sensory modulation, uh, derivatives of ATP, specifically adenosine. Um, this is still very much at the experimental level uh, in, in animals mostly, but there's a possibility that this fibroblast response may be linked to peripheral sensory modulation using um, uh, purinergic uh, mechanisms, although we have not done that experiment in my lab at the moment where we can measure the purinergic signaling and, and also at the same time the um, the pain level, you know, of an animal. That's that experiment has not been done uh, from the point of view of the fibroblast yet. It's a very difficult experiment to do. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, so this is kind of where we are now, and with respect to pain, and but of, of, you know, I like to think about it in three different ways. Uh, the first way is connective tissue can simply be the mechanical transducer of the signal from the needle to, say, the nervous system. I mean, that's pretty clear right. that if you rotate the needle and it's going to pull on collagen and then you have little sensory fibers nearby and they're going to get mechanically stimulated. I mean, that is not, that is pretty simple. That's not The second level, right, yeah. the second level would be what I just described, which is a, a, a signaling that's intracellular and extracellular signaling within connective tissue that could sort of help spread the, the signal from the needle throughout the connective tissue and then secondarily that might affect sensory nerves nearby. That's the second mechanism. And then the third mechanism is the possibility that acupuncture needles may actually have an effect on connective tissue itself. That if there's some sort of pathology in connective tissue that, that exists that, that could be um, improved by the acupuncture. And, Again, that's it. this is something that um, we are still in the middle of investigating, but we're very interested in the effect of stretching, mm -hmm. which the acupuncture needle does, on inflammation and fibrosis. These yeah. are two different aspects of connective tissue pathology that may very well be related to pain. And and if connective tissue is inflamed, um, you know, it, it's it can 
it, it can generate pain. And if it's fibrotic, it's also going, going to be uh, not as supple and it won't uh, be as effective uh, a, a tissue. And so uh, people in Chinese medicine call, uh, they talk about blockages and stuckness and things yeah. like that. And I think some of these um, uh, aspects of, of connective tissue that are described in Chinese medicine, I think, may, could very well be related to uh, connective tissue pathology, although this is still a hypothetical at this stage. Okay, that, that's made it very clear and, and very understandable. Thank you. Now, um, so going on from there, um, I don't know too much about uh, your um, involvement or, or your understanding of uh, dry needling. I'm sure you know what what, uh, what it is, but how it works and so on. Let's say um, we've got uh, dry needling and there's two types, generally speaking. There's a superficial and deep dry needling. Now, uh, with superficial dry needling, the needle is inserted in for sometimes as little as 30 seconds. Uh, the deep dry needling, well, there's a pistoning effect that the needle is pushed in and out. So neither of those are really like what, what uh, acupuncturists do, which is to turn the needle and get bind. However, if a superficial dry needling uh, therapist was to turn that needle, but at a point that it was a tender point in muscle rather than acupoint, could we say that the same effects that you've just described would also occur given that um, acupoints and trigger points, uh, there's a big overlap with the two? Well, the whole issue of acupoints is something that I feel needs to be looked at very carefully. I mean, we have never really seen any evidence in our experiments that anything that we've observed with needling of connective tissue is specific to acu acupoints or any specific location. Sure. We, we, we have found that pretty much anywhere you put the needle, if there's connective tissue, the needle is going to interact with it. Yeah. There are some locations of the body that are, that are located where connective tissue is, protect, for example, between two muscles where the connective tissue may be a little bit deeper and we've observed some increased in the amount of grabbing of the needle of the, the what we've been able to measure with our with our force gauge but that is not definitely a big difference we've noticed only like a 25 20 percent difference between the the um, the location between the muscles and the location over the belly of the muscle so I would say that none of what we've observed is specific to acupoints now in terms of where trigger points might be located I know that there was a study a long time ago, I believe it was in the 1970s, that found that um, a lot, some of the trigger points that tend to be located where acupuncture points are, uh, you know, I don't think this was a very carefully controlled study. Um, these, the locations of these acupuncture points are very, very, you know, loosely described not two, you know, two people might put them, you know, in different locations, and so, uh, you know, I I think it's very possible that 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 trigger points and acupuncture points are are overlap, but I wouldn't I would not um, I, I don't I, I don't know of any seriously convincing evidence of that. Um, so I guess that's just basically to say I don't know the answer to this question, but I wouldn't worry too much about 
the specificity of the location of an effect. I think it's more, you know, if you happen to needle an area that's tender, yeah. where there's a little bit of pathology there, whether it's an acupuncture point or not an acupuncture point, you could call it a trigger point, I suppose. Um, but it's really more defined by what the patient feels rather than where the where the specific point is, you know, anatomically. Is that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. So what you're saying is really rather than getting all caught up in what we're going to call these areas, we're li really looking at the customer, which is the patient and, and what they're feeling. If they feel there's some tenderness around there or there's some pathology, then at, at any need or whether you, if you put it in what you want to call an acupuncture point or a trigger point, doesn't matter what you call it, if you put it into that area, it's going to connect into that uh, vast system of uh, connective tissue and have an effect. So we don't need to get caught up in what it's called, but it's what happens after that. Yeah, I agree. And, and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to put a needle in a, in a tender area, is again, that, that needs to be studied. Um, not all tender areas are going to reflect exactly the same thing, right? Somebody might have, you know, an area where you got acute inflammation, for example. Yeah. It may not be a great idea to put a needle there. On yeah. the other hand, if you have a point that represents an area where uh, connective tissue has had a little bit of like an internal scar or some area where the collagen fibers have become thickened and maybe there's like a little nerve ending that's yeah. being caught there and the needle can actually move things around and help sort of stimulate and liberate the the area, um, that's very different from inflammation, right? Yeah. So think we need to a lot more research in identifying these local areas of of, of pain yeah. and understand the pathology associated with them and this is where a lot of imaging I think uh, you know we use a lot of ultrasound in my work and try to understand uh, what and, and 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 plenty other research groups have have looked at that I I, I know that there's the work of uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of um, Dr. Jay Shaw yeah yeah who's done uh, ultrasound studies of myofascial trigger points and saw differences uh, between active trigger points and latent trigger points and how they appeared with different ultrasound-based techniques. I think this is the area where we have to really push and try to understand this pathology, hopefully in a way that's not invasive. Uh, because obviously we, we can't just go and do biopsies of these things. I mean, we would be obviously, you know, hurting the patient if we did that. Yeah. So we have to use non-invasive techniques, which which is tricky, but yeah. um, it's very important that we do that. Yeah, no, that's right. And, um, you know, talking about acute injuries, uh, that's another interesting one that some therapists would believe that perhaps uh, treating a inversion sprain uh, of an ankle and using needling uh, into that uh, area is uh, perhaps prohibitive because it's inflamed and then you're going to cause more inflammation and more pain and so on by sticking a needle in there. But there are other ways around that. And, and, and uh, 
not wanting to talk clinically here, but more from what we're talking about and the role of uh, fascia and connective tissue is that if the, the, the connective tissue has a widespread effect, and it, it does, then you can always needle remote, but near that area, uh, perhaps around the lateral uh, shin, uh, the perineal structures, or even just around the swelling or the, the ankle itself, but not into the swelling, to have an effect on the area that's injured. I mean, that, that's another way. And, and interestingly, that's, that's what uh, a lot of acupuncturists do. Sometimes when you work further away from a point of uh, disease or, or, or illness, it has a more profound effect is what some acupuncturists uh, believe or, or, or do. Yep, that's right. And that's very much part of, of, of traditional acupuncture you know, theory. Actually, there was goes, it gets back to question you asked earlier which I didn't answer you were asking me about treating things like uh, irritable bowel and yeah, yeah. You know, headaches and things like that um, that's something that uh, I don't study in my lab I think I'm interested in sort of distant effects of acupuncture but not so di you know I, I'm I'm extent I'm interested in what you might call extended local effects so if effects you know where you would needle not right at the area of, of, the, of the pain or the pathology, but a little bit removed from that, but still kind of along what we call connective tissue planes that, that connect, you know, the different parts of, like, say, for example, above and below the knee or along the leg or, you know, those types of connective tissue planes. I think that's where the effects that we're seeing on connective tissue, that, 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 that might, they might sort of be propagated. And, and now whether if you needle somebody on their leg what effects that might have on their on their you know shoulder or on their bowel or you know this is not i know other people are looking at this and i think if if you're looking at those types of responses that they're i think they're more likely to be uh, nervous system uh, related reflexes like uh, autonomic nervous system reflexes for the for the um, the the gut you know, or, or the cardiovascular effects those have been well documented. Um, and, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I think that, that not everything can be explained by connective tissue, you mm. know, mm. Very, that's very important to think about that. Yeah, yeah, you sound like you've got a clear, obviously, understanding of what you're trying to do, and and, and obviously, if you looked at that bigger picture of well, how, how does an acupuncturist treat uh, people with insomnia or or uh, depression, even or uh, irritable bowel, as I mentioned before, that that's just a, a very, very big question, and uh, one that uh, perhaps is for other researchers. Your clear focus is on what ha what happens uh, with a connective tissue connection, if if you like. Right, right, and I, so I would say locally and regionally. I mean, that's kind of the area where where I'm I'm looking at. Yeah, maybe in the next lifetime. That that's that's your. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Once we understand connective tissue better, I mean, connective tissue has intrigued me from the start because it is a body-wide network, and I you know I've published about this, but I think it's important not to get carried away, because we don't have the tools, you know, and, and the techniques to to measure. Yeah. whole body effects you know we don't know if they exist even yeah. but it's interesting to think about connective tissue as a network but right now we, we don't really have a way to to measure you know how a, a, you know a particular signal in one part of the network might affect uh, another part of the network we just don't know how to do that
No. Okay, which which is a, a great segue into my next question. Basically, you've done some research on connections and their role in a cell-to-cell information network. Is that right? Tell me about that. Yeah, what we have found is that there are connections that are um, that we can see uh, between uh, two fibroblasts that have their like, processes that, that, that join each other and there's connections there. And also we have found that if we block, and so connections do two things in a cell. They can form what's called gap junctions between cells and then they also can call, form hemichannels between the cell and the outside of the cell. And when we blocked these hemichannels, the, uh, we're using drugs, then the um, ATP signaling didn't take place and the, the cell did not expand in response to, this was not acupuncture, these experiments were stretching, but it's very similar to what happens during acupuncture. So we, we think that uh, the connections may be involved in the response of the acupuncture and perhaps in some of the purinergic signaling that we've observed. Right, yeah. Okay, I've got you. Okay, it's an exciting area of research, is it not? It is, yeah, absolutely. Okay, now, do you go to work just excited every day? Because this stuff is, I'm just excited just talking to you. Imagine what it'd be like working on this stuff. Oh, yeah, it's 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 really fun, and, it, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's not, uh, you know, there, there, there's some element of, um, you know, discovery all the time. We feel like we're looking at things that, uh, are both very old and very new. I mean, they're they're very old in the sense that a lot of the phenomena that we're studying have been described a long, long, long time ago by you know people who do body work and massage and acupuncture. And but then it's also very new because we've um, we're only just beginning to understand the role of connective tissue in the body. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and its interaction with other systems. I think the one of the important uh, interactions that we're looking at is the interactions between the connective tissue system and the immune system. Yeah. And so that's a very important thing, and I think we have not paid enough attention to that so far. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, that's for another uh, time, that one. Let's go back to uh, an area which uh, I treat uh, every day as an osteopath and a dry needling therapist and uh, is lower back pain. Now, you've done uh, some research which uh, indicates some abnormality in connective tissues in patients with chronic low back pain. Tell me about that. Yeah. We've done a study of people with low back pain who had had back pain for more than a year. Yep. And we tested over 100 people, uh, some of them had back pain, some of them didn't, and we found that on average, people who had back pain, their connective tissue was a little bit thicker uh, than people who didn't. And then we wanted to also see whether the connective tissue uh, was functioning normally, so we tested them uh, undergoing a passive flexion of the trunk. And what we found is, this was in the back, and the connective tissue was less mobile in patients who had back pain on average. It's not everybody who has back pain who has this, mm. but on average, if you if you look at everybody, a whole group of people, um, the connective tissues seem to be move less freely. So we don't know what causes this, and uh, at the moment we have some animal models where we're actually trying to figure out if we can you know produce this experimentally. 
Okay, I got you. Okay, so so um, the the next question um, will lead on to sort of a discussion about stretching, but more uh, and back pain and so on. And and that's your study to do with. Um, pigs, you've looked at uh, stretching, which is an area that interests me, uh, whether stretching actually works. Many therapists will give uh, your average patient, you know, a whole host of stretches. The patient will do them or maybe not. Generally, patients will only do things if they're actually in pain and then they'll forget about them. But is stretching actually useful? Well, we we think so. I mean, in, in our animal models, at least, we, we can ha take an animal that has inflammation of the connective tissue and then we randomize the animals to either stretching every day versus no stretching yeah and the animals who are stretching have less inflammation there is no doubt about it okay so we are really interested in that we, we want to understand what is it about the stretching that is doing it um, we want to know is it is it some sort of systemic effect is it because the animal is is relaxing during the stretching or not and we think it's actually a direct effect on the connective tissue because we can stretch the animals while they're being anesthetized. Right. They are basically asleep. Right. And we stretch them and the control animal has the same anesthesia. They're simply not stretched and the stretched animal still has less inflammation. Right. So yeah. this is something that we think is a direct effect of the stretching on the tissues. Okay. Could, could you um, uh, expand that little bit with now recently, uh, not recently as in yesterday, but in the last five, six years or so, there's been a, a move in, in sport to recommend that before one does sport, we do what's called dynamic stretching, which is a, a sort of like a, a movement that replicates the type of activity you're about to undertake. So quick, rapid type of stretches, not holding a stretch for any longer than say two or three seconds. And then there's the static stretching, which may be what you're talking about, uh, you'll tell me in a moment, after your exercise is the recommended. So you hold a stretch for 20, 30 seconds or so. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something that we is right, or, or should we be doing that, or does it matter what type of stretching you do? Oh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me empirically. I mean, but also, I mean, there's a lot of research, for example, in sports medicine. People have found definitely that static stretching before exercise is not a good idea. Yeah. Uh, especially in sports teams, they found it decreases performance, it in, increases your risk of injury. So, if you think about it. I think a lot of it has to do with how hard people are stretching. I think you know a lot of athletes they're 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 <laughs> they they maybe want to overdo it and stretch too much and and too hard and too long, and that induces ligament creep. You know, like if yeah. you are stretching a joint, um, your your ligament is going to stretch and and you may not it may not be a great idea to go and play a soccer game yeah. right after that. Uh, if your ligaments have already been sort of laxed, re, you know, relaxed and, and will not protect your joint as well. So mm -hmm. I, I, I totally feel that that makes complete sense. Now, in terms of whether static stretching is good at all, yeah. um, I think we're certainly showing in our experiments, in our animal experiments, that static stretching decreases inflammation. Now, yeah. how do you apply that to a human yeah. is something that will need to be done very carefully and I think understanding the correct dose yeah. how much you stretch what is the right amount of strain that you apply on the tissues 
I think it's going to end up being not a lot. Yeah. Uh, your tissues are the tissues. If you stretch them too much, you injure them. Yeah. And so injuring your tissues is not the idea. Yeah. Um, because when you think about it, what is a sprain, right? A sprain is a, a exaggerated stretch. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and the rate at which you stretch too, right? Yeah. How quickly yeah. you do it. I think the way I like to think about this is that it's not just a, a, a matter of stretching. It's also like, for example, in yoga, they what you're instructed to do is you have, you, you're instructed to stretch, but you're instructed to pay attention to how your body feels while you're stretching it. And if it hurts, you back off. You don't yeah. go and, and stretch beyond the yeah. level where you have pain. Yeah. So I think these are all things that have to be, well, first of all, common sense, I think, uh, needs to be applied. And research is hopefully going to help us to understand um, the, the correct dose of stretching and when it should be applied. But you can imagine how difficult and, and how, long, how long that takes because you have to essentially randomize you know, either animals or people to all kinds of different doses, and there's infinite, you know, numbers of, you know, how long you stretch, how much force you apply, how often you do it, mm. you know, that kind of thing. So this yeah. is this is not easy research to do. It's like essentially doing dosing studies, you know, for drugs. You know, yeah. you, you have to try to, you know, do a dose response curve essentially. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's it's, it's a really good example of what I see when I read research is that. Because of the nature of research that let's say that you were going to look at static stretching, you have to reduce the experiment down to such a such a small uh, focused uh, one stretch, one area of the body, one muscle, and therefore it uh, ironically becomes then difficult to then apply it to a general um, opinion or advice because it the experiment actually had to reduce everything down to such a small thing to be meaningful but then it is not really meaningful outside the the, the, the the study that's sometimes the problem with research that's right. and you have to replicate it in enough people to be yeah. able to then do statistics on it yeah and and you have to try to do the same thing or as close as possible to the same thing in large numbers of people to 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 be able to draw you know conclusions and that's it's expensive to do and it's it's mm. really not easy in animals it's a little bit easier because you can your animals are more uh, similar to each other yeah and you can you can randomize them uh, it's but then there's also there's some limitations as to how much you can apply that's why you had mentioned earlier some of our studies is in pigs and mm. pigs have very similar connective tissues to humans yes and that's why we want to use we use pigs for a lot of or some of our studies uh, you can do some studies on rats for example and mice but their connective tissues are quite different than ours yeah and so that's why the, the pig model is good it's very expensive uh, and and it's you know it's not easy to do, but for some research questions it's quite good. Excellent. Now uh, just moving on to uh, something that's happening at the end of this year, uh, you're chairing a one-day special event in November uh, as part of the Fascia Research Congress in Acupuncture and Oncology in Boston, and the title alone is a great teaser. What does fascia have to do with cancer? 
Can you tell me a little more about this? Because a little birdie told me, can I, can I pose a question to you of, uh, which starts like this? Someone told me that uh, cancer, you're more likely to get cancer if you have tight fascia. Can you go from, it sounds like a headline you'd read in the newspaper. What's, what's with that title? Um, these are epidemiological studies that um, are not, are, are, there's a little bit of debate about this, but there's some, you know, circumstantial evidence that, you know, um, people who have very loose fascia uh, may be protected from cancer. So right. the conversely, you know. But I think the, the strongest evidence that fascia is involved in cancer uh, comes from study of cancer of tumors, of cancer biology, and that the cancer cells do not just grow on their own. Yeah. They have to have uh, connective tissue, and they call it the stroma of the tissue of the of the tumor. Yeah. And connective tissue is necessary for the tumor to grow. Um, and the connective tissue has to support the growth of the cancer. It has to provide blood vessels and, and nutrients to the cancer. And the ca cancer essentially kind of hijacks the, the, the blood, the, the, the connective tissue of the person. Now, there's some very interesting research that has shown that when the connective tissue is stiffer, or where when a tumor starts to, to, to take hold and spread, that encourages the spreading of the tumor. And so, and so there's like this interesting kind of relationship between the cancer and the connective tissue uh, locally um, that may influence the growth of, of the cancer. So that's, this is what we're going to talk about at, at that conference. Another aspect of what we're going to talk about is the treatment of cancer patients using integrative approaches to improve patients' you know, general health, their sleep, their their lymphatic function, you know that kind of thing. So, it 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 has a there's both a clinical aspect to this and a basic aspect that, uh, to this as well. It's going to be a very interesting conference. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm uh, hoping to uh, go and uh, listen to yourself and the other speakers uh, in Boston later this year at that conference. It sounds fascinating because fascia and uh, and connective tissue is a, a really um, popular subject right now. It's the, it's the thing to talk about, is it not? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's definitely a part of the body that has um, been uh, late at coming to the party. Uh, you know, if you look at any, you know, textbook of, you know, medicine or, uh, you know, physiology, you're lucky to find a, a paragraph on, on fascia or connective yeah. tissue uh, if you look for it. Um, but lately, I think there's been a resurgence of interest in connective tissue and fascia, and I think that's a very good thing. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, we're uh, just uh, talking about back to dry needling now, and uh, you've done some research on the pull-out force. And we're talking about whirling effect and the tension that you get when you turn a, a, an acupuncture needle. In one of your studies, you found that the pull-out force was about 18% greater at acupuncture points uh, than corresponding points, and uh, that's the knee needle grasp that uh, we talk about. Now, given that uh, uh, we uh, are saying that it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about an acupoint or a trigger point. We can assume then that the same points that when we when we 
uh, turn a needle and we're doing some dry needling, that the same effect's going to happen. If that needle is into muscle rather than connective tissue alone, we're just talking, we can still see the same things, right? Well, yeah, you, you cannot put a needle in muscle without going through some connective tissue. Right? Absolutely, right. So, but the, the converse is, true, is not true, though. You can put the needle in connective tissue without putting it in muscle. Yeah, you just don't go deeper. You just don't. don't yeah. And so at one of the very, very early experiments that we did, we were curious about this because we did not know when you insert a needle and you twir twirl it around and you get this force, pull-out force, is it the muscle causing the pull-out force? Is the muscle contracting and, 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 and gripping the needle? Or is it a connective tissue, you know, that's winding around? We didn't know that at the time. This was in the, you know, 2000, 2000, 2001. And so we did an experiment where we inserted the needle at the same depth in two different locations. One location where the muscle was a little bit more superficial, so the needle was going through into muscle, and then the other location where the needle, the connective tissues were a little deeper, and the muscle was deeper, and then the same needle depth was not going into muscle. And then we rotated the needle to the same amount, and we measured the pull-out force, and what we found to our surprise is the pull-out force was greater when the needle was not in muscle. Right. And so that at least showed that it's the muscle contraction is was was not the only at least determinant of the pull-out force. Um, connective tissue was playing a part for sure. Okay, so that, yeah, you've answered my next question, which was a study you did in uh, 2001 and 2002, which um, it decided it basically uh, found that your pull-out force was related to not just, uh, it, it was definitely the the, uh, the connective tissue, eliminated muscle as being the thing that was causing the greater pull-out force, right? Right. We knew that when you inserted the needle to the same depth with no muscle penetration at all, the pull-out force was greater than when it was inserted at the same depth but with muscle penetration. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what that experiment showed very clearly. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, let's just uh, wind up shortly. I know I've taken uh, your time to this morning or, or this evening, this afternoon is for you, at right? <laughs> but um, I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions and we'll wind up. Uh, last and uh, not least, where is your research going to take you now, Ellen? Uh, what are you most looking forward to, to, to looking at next? You've covered a lot of things and you've been uh, very accomplished in your career, but where do, where do you think your research is going to take you? Well, we have a lot of lot left to do. Um, we're very interested in again this whole idea about the, figuring out what is the connective tissue pathology that is associated with uh, chronic pain, chronic low back pain in particularly, in particular, and and can you change that? Can you reverse it, um, or can you prevent it? Um, and if you improve the pathology, does the pain improve? Um, that's really important. And so one of the things we want to do is we want to take people who have uh, reduced fascial mobility and then we want to treat them and with um, and, you know either manual therapies or movement therapies or, or, or even acupuncture uh, and see what whether it gets better. Uh, and uh, and then of course we're interested in the, um, the the mechanisms by which uh, stretching may improve uh, inflammation and um, and improve fascial mobility. 
Wow. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you this morning, Ellen, and uh, I really want to thank you uh, on behalf of my listeners at CPD Health Courses and uh, wish you the best and hope to speak to you sometime in the future uh, when you've done another, uh, possibly by then, another 120 research articles and uh, you're, uh, you're uh, uh, even more knowledgeable than you are, which is hard, uh, you are now, which is hard to believe. So thank you very much, Ellen, and uh, uh, good luck um, with your studies and uh, your research. Well, thank you very much. CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com.